Ezra 1, it's interesting. And then they get to Ezra 2, and it's 125 unpronounceable names. And, you know, we are practical people, and we think, what in the world does that have to do with the fact that um, my spouse is a jerk, my boss is a jerk, my kids are hard, I'm sick, I don't like my life, and now you're asking me to read 125 names. I don't really care about those people. Which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because we live in the day and age where I matter. <laughs> right? <laughs> I matter. What? I'm important. You need to know my name. You need to know who I am. But I don't really care about these people. <laughs> you know? Isn't it funny? Anyway, I think it's funny. But um, obviously y'all don't. So uh, I'm glad I told Ann to turn the AC on in here because... Uh, it's a hard room today. But anyway, um, the, 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 the fact is, uh, this is a rich text. I'm not going to uh, read all 70 verses uh, to you uh, today. We're going to read the first couple, and then we're going to read at the end. We'll cite, I'll cite a number of uh, uh, things as we, as we work through, uh, through the text today. Uh, but it is, God has much to say to us this morning uh, in this text. So in light of that, let me pray. Uh, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we come to you today as your people, uh, reading and studying about your people and how you were faithful, how you were good, how you were gracious and merciful uh, in ages past. Lord, I, I pray for those of us who are here today who are ashamed. I pray for those of us who are here today who are sick. I pray for those of us who are here today who are uh, afraid, and I pray for those of us who are here today who are just cold. Lord, uh, I'm sure in these 42,000 people that you brought back from uh, uh, Babylon to Jerusalem, there were people just like us, and yet you were there, you remained faithful, and you completed your work. So... Uh, Help us today. You know our needs. Uh, Be with us. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let me read to you Ezra 2 uh, and uh, beginning uh, just the the first uh, couple of verses. Uh, It's in the bulletin also up uh, on the screens behind me. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. And if you add one other name to that, the name that we read about last week, Sheshbazer, the uh, the governor, that's 12. And so that should help you see some uh, congruence here, 12 tribes. Uh, 12 apostles, God likes, God likes the number 12. So, uh, you may read this and you may think there's a lot of names. Uh, that's one of the problems I have with the Bible. There's a lot of names, a lot of begats, a lot of genealogies, a lot of lists. And I don't really, uh, I, that's not, that's not my bag, right? Um, uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, when we read a text like this, we need to take a couple of things away. Certainly, we need to learn about those people. That's true. Uh, but more than that, you know, this is God's word. 
It's the Bible. God gave us this, speaks to us through this. And so he has something in this text for you and for me. Otherwise, why would he have gone to so much pain to put this in here? To bore you? Now, maybe some of you think God, well, wouldn't it be just like him to do that? <laughs> right? But maybe, maybe, uh, so we have to begin there with the fact that this is the Bible. This is God's word. So he, he has something in this for me. He has something in this for us. Right? And so that's, that's, that's where, that's where we need uh, to begin today. So, uh, but the other thing to note about this is, so before you despise, and, and you can go ahead and put my notes up, Scott, before you despise genealogies or lists, our culture is, is a lot about this. Have you ever been to the Virginia War Memorial? It's not just a statue and a building. Engraved in stone there are the names of all the people who came from Virginia to fight in uh, starting at World War One, right? Isn't, isn't that right? It starts at World War One. All their names, the ones who died, are listed there. Each one of them. Now, if you were related to one of those people, if you knew some one of those people, that name engraved on that stone would matter a lot. Have you ever been to the uh, Vietnam War Memorial uh, in Washington D.C.? What is it? It's a list of names a giant list of names of all the people who died in Vietnam, right? That, that, it's, it's a pretty profound thing for us to, uh, to begin to think about that, that these people had lives, that they had aspirations, they had hopes, they had sins, they had dreams, they had all of those things. And, and that list matters because those people matter. And why do they matter? Because first and foremost, something we take for granted, we don't think about very often is every one of those people, every one of these 42,000 people that, uh, is ultimately uh, were the people who returned to, uh, Jerusalem, Every one of them was created in the image of God. Every one of them was a sinner. And every one of them needed redeeming. Every single one of them, right? And so, uh, and, and, and they were named. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they had families. Uh, uh, they had lives, right? So, so they mattered. Now, the other thing to note about this is by the time Ezra writes this, all of these people on this list are dead. So what Ezra is doing some 85 years after what's, what's recorded here happens, he's saying these are the people, remember the people who came. Remember the people, the pioneers who heard the call of God there in Persia, who heard the call of God to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and they went to a place that they remember 68 almost 70 years, none of them had ever been there. What little they knew about it is, is, is probably tiny. And we don't, it, it, what was the content of their faith? Probably very, very small. And yet God stirred them and they got up from their lives, generational lives there in Babylon, and they went back to Jerusalem. The other thing that's important about this is too, one of, one of the things that we, we tend to think, uh, we don't, we don't tend to think generationally, but God thinks generationally. Yesterday we spent nine hours with our grandson, nine hours. Um, and, you know, 
Of course, the world's his oyster for those nine hours. He gets whatever he wants. He has the focused attention of two uh, crazy adults. And um, whatever he wants, uh, he gets. And I know that he had a great time because I slept till 6 o'clock this morning. And I never do that. <laughs> so I was uh, I was exhausted. Um, but while I was rolling around on the floor with him yesterday playing with him, it occurred to me that my parents would be undone by him. It would just, they would uh, be so delighted to see their great-grandson. And the reason for that is, and one of the the things about this little boy that he has no clue about, not a clue, is how blessed he is. Not because he's my grandson, not because uh, he's my son's son, He's blessed because he has a heritage of people knowing the gospel that goes back generations. And that matters. That's a profound thing. And, and, and wherever he goes and whatever he does and whatever kind of man he grows into, that is true of him, right? Uh, and that God has seen fit to place him squarely in the midst of a family like that, that matters. Right. And so these people that we read about here, they, they, they are in the stream of the work of God. They are in the stream of the generations of the purpose of God. They they're they're in the midst of that. And so it's a it's it, what Ezra does by writing this is he wants us to remember those people who got up from Babylon with a tiny bit of faith, probably with very little knowledge, almost no knowledge of what they were returning to, to go back to build a temple that was in ruins because they had some sense that the work of God called them to do that. I believe that God loves all kinds of people, but there is something in the scriptures that we have to take note of is that pioneers, people that take a risk, who get up from their comfortable existence and go somewhere else because God is calling them to do that, have a special place in God's heart. Uh, I was remembering uh, uh, this morning... Um, uh, when uh, when we started this church uh, 26 years ago, um, uh, we had a very good, very comfortable, very great church situation we were in, and yet we felt God called us to plant this church. Uh, and, and the going away party that we had uh, at Stony Point before we came over here, um, they made they made fun of us a little bit, rightly so, because we were pretty ragged, very ragged. Uh, about uh, changing babies' diapers uh, in the boys' dressing room at Bird Middle School. Uh, and I still remember the smell, not of the diapers, but of the dressing room <laughs> some 26 years ago. But there was something profound about that group of people, I think, who were willing to do something kind of crazy to go and do that. Well, that's exactly what we see here in this text. These people... Uh, get up and go. And if I do my math right and, 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 and uh, uh, think about this, there were a lot of good people who stayed in Babylon. There were a lot of good people who stayed back. But these were the people that God knew, that he had a purpose for, that he wanted to see them go back and reestablish there in Jerusalem uh, his worship. And this is important because if these people don't go back, 
what's the gospel going to look like? What, how, how is Jesus going to come into the world uh, in uh, the, the, the region, in the place there that was promised to Abraham? How is there going to be a people there for him uh, to, to come to? And so all of this, this matters. These 42,000 people, they mattered, right? So what, not only do we need to ask that question about what we, can we learn about these people, but what can we learn about God? Well, the first one is he's faithful to his word. And you're probably thinking, you say that every week. My eyes are rolling back in my head. Tell me something I don't know. Well, the, the, the fact is what you have to see about this is, is that this, um, this is pretty profound, because there's a lot that we might think would keep God from being faithful to his word. It's not just that God had promised the people after the exile that he would return them. He had made that promise. He made it through Jeremiah. He made it through Isaiah. But even more than that, God, and before that, God had said to Abraham and Sarah, a childless elderly couple, that they would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, right? And so here, what God began with a childless couple uh, bringing a child into their lives, now we see thousands of those people, thousands of those descendants, thousands of those people who worship that God are making the trek back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so God had promised that he would do this to Abraham. God had promised to his people that he would do this. This is, this is the case. I know many of you think God has forgotten you. God has forgotten his promise to you. Your life is hard. You are overwhelmed by sin. You are overwhelmed by suffering. You are overwhelmed by uh, all of those things. But the fact of the matter is, just as these people had to wait some 68 years before they moved back to Jerusalem, God is faithful to his word. If he said it, he will complete it. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Do you believe that? That promise is as sure as the promise God made through Jeremiah and Isaiah that he would restore his people. You may feel like you're in exile. You may feel ashamed. You may feel like your life is locked in darkness, but the truth is, if God has begun a work in you, he will bring it to completion. Why? Because he said he would do it. Okay? Next slide. Second, well, not only is he faithful to his word, he's faithful to his people. He names these people because they matter to him. He loves them. They are dear to him. Uh, they are his people. And so, as we, as we, as we, as we look at this, it's not just that God has this kind of strange commitment to commitment. God, God is committed to people. He is committed to people like us. God is committed to people who struggle, people who, who are weak. He is committed to people whose faith waxes and wanes. But that, that does not keep him from maintaining his commitment to his people. He loves me. He loves you. You matter to him. And so just as we saw last week, they do that crazy count of all those pots and pans and all of those sorts of things. God has committed himself not just to an idea. God has committed himself not just to a a few individuals. He has committed himself to a people. He is our God and we are his people. We belong to him. And though there may be much that may seem to put the lie to that, nothing changes that fact. God 
loves his people, and he will complete and bring to fruition his purpose for you and for me. And then thirdly, he will not allow our sin to get the final word. One of the things that we forget about this is these people are in this fix that they're in, in exile, uh, because of generations of sin. It wasn't just that, you know, there was a, a particularly bad king and all of a sudden the Babylonians showed up and carried these people off into exile. There were centuries and generations of unfaithfulness. Centuries and generations of unfaithfulness. So that by the time we get to Ezra chapter 2 and these people are heading back to Jerusalem They probably know very little about the content of their faith. They probably know very little about uh, God. What what had their worship been like? What had their instruction been like? Probably tiny. But the fact is, here they are. God is still at work. He is faithful to them, and he is bringing them back uh, to Jerusalem. Listen, listen, you and I are tempted to think addicts, people with besetting sins, people with besetting diseases and uh, maladies, that these things define us. Your upbringing defines you, right? We, we tend to, to lock into those things without really understanding that no matter what struggle, no matter what sin may have been arrayed against us, no matter what kind of our, our genetic makeup may have been, it doesn't matter. If you and I are in Christ today, he gets the last word. And you know what the last word is? Well done, good and faithful servant. You know what the last word is? He will be their God and he will live with them and they will be his people. That's the last word. It's not... You're a loser. It's not that, well, you, you know, you had potential, but you squandered it. <laughs> you know, you, you would have been so much. That's not the final word. The final word of the gospel, the final word of the God who loves us, the final word of the God who has a purpose for us is something much deeper, richer, eternal, and fuller for us. And so these people... As, as probably ignorant and uncertain and afraid as they are, they are actually demonstrating to us that the generations and the millennia of sin that preceded them will not keep God from completing his purpose for them. Will not allow sin and death to be the final word. The resurrection of Jesus is the final word. That, that is where all of us, that is where history is headed. Okay, so now a a little bit about these people. So verses 36 through 39 tell us about the priests. And what if you do the math, about 10 percent of the people who are returning from uh, Babylon are priests. Now, why would they be first? Is it because Ezra's a priest and so he's he's writing this? What? Why is it? Well, what's the point? Why are they going back to Jerusalem? They're not going back to Jerusalem to go back and reclaim some uh, ancient property rights. They're going back to Jerusalem to reestablish the temple. And you got to have priests to do that. So almost 10% of the people who are returning uh, are, are, uh, are, are priests. Uh, verse 40 tells us that there are 74 Levites. That's one Levite. For every 58 priests, poor Levites, they're there to assist, uh, to assist the priests uh, 
uh, in, in their worship. Verse 41 tells us about singers. Now, why is this so that they can have some concerts in the park in downtown Jerusalem when they get when they get back there? No. You see what you should see about this priest, Levite singers, what God's heart is here. And the thing that he is about is restoring uh, his right worship there through the rebuilding of the temple and through the reestablishment of his people there uh, in their in their country. Next slide. We read in verses 42 through 54 about all the people who are going to work in the temple, who who are going to uh, uh, be a part of maintaining it. Then we read in verses 55 through 57 uh, uh, the, the names of these people, and about half of them have non-Hebrew names. They're called Solomon's servants. These are the people that during the reign of David and Solomon were prisoners of war, were taken as slaves from other nations who now because of the work of God and generations later, identify themselves, not, not uh, uh, will identify themselves as followers of, of, of the God of Israel. And then in 59 through 63, uh, we read about these people who can't prove their pedigree. They think they're priests. They think they come from priestly families, but they don't have their papers. They don't have their passports. They don't have their driver's license with the star in the upper right-hand corner. So for whatever reason, it's, uh, we're, not, we're not really sure what they're, where they come from. And so they have to be uh, kind of checked out by the priests and the existing uh, structure. there. And we read that and we think, you know, that's so exclusionary. That's... That's such a terrible thing. But you see, one of the things we miss about this is, is that what God is doing there is teaching his people about the fact that what he wants is worshipers and he gets to be the one who dictates how he's worshiped. If, if it, and, and this is actually a mercy to these people because if they presume to themselves a priestly role that's not really theirs, uh, then they put themselves and their worshipers in danger. God, remember, there's a lot of stories in the Old Testament where people are trifling with worship and it doesn't, it doesn't work out so well, right? So there, we, we, we have this, we have this giant list. And then in verse 64 through 70, we read this conclusion, right? The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Now, I'm sorry, animal lovers, that the horses aren't named. <laughs> right? What is it? Uh, cats are people too, right? Have you ever seen that? Uh, whoever wrote that, really? They're dumb. Anyway, um, <laughs> their mules were 245. I'd like to know some mules' names. Wouldn't you, right? Their camels were 435 and their donkeys were 6,720. And verse 68 tells us some of the heads of families when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver and 100 priest garments. Now, the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants 
lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So what, what do we note about this? Well, if you read about all of that livestock and all of that gold and silver and everything, one of the things that we have to conclude, though the people got some offerings from the people there uh, uh, that were in Persia before they came to uh, Jerusalem, a lot of these people that are returning are rich. They're rich. Exile was very good for them. They made a lot of money. They were successful. You remember that great text from Jeremiah where he told the people to settle down, to uh, to live there, and to pray for the prosperity of the city where God had, had placed them? They did that, and they prospered. They did all right. They got rich there, which is what makes this all the more remarkable that though they had had a great economic situation there in um, uh, in Babylon, Whatever reason, they leave that, they leave their jobs, they leave their, their uh, economic interests, interests, and they go back to Jerusalem. It's a pretty, pretty powerful uh, picture, and we read that they give according to their ability. And all of this is not to reestablish the nation, although that happens, sort of. Uh, all of this is not to rebuild the city, although that happens, sort of. All of this was to reestablish one thing, the right worship of God. All of this, all of this, all this money, all this time, all this energy, all this travel, why? To reestablish the worship of God. What a letdown, right? But here's what you have to see about this is, I don't, I know that if I were to go and ask you today, who are you, what are you, and why are you here? You would probably say, I'm a lawyer, I'm a banker, I'm a realtor, I'm a teacher, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm a student, I'm a painter, I'm an artist. The essential thing that you are is a worshiper. That's what you were made for. That's why God did this. That's why God looks out upon the void and creates a world. Why? For his worship and for his glory. And that you and I were designed to do that. That is, that is essential to us. All these other things, they're important. They matter. God's interested in your vocation. But first and foremost, our God is about the business of seeking worshipers for himself. And so that's, that's what he's doing here is he is sending these people back. He is giving them, giving them great gifts so that they can reestablish the right worship of the God of the universe. Part of your frustration with your life is you think you're something else. You think you're, 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 you're primarily a, another kind of person. But no, you were made, you're created, you're redeemed to be a worshiper. Now, one of the things that happens whenever I say this to people is, yeah, that's true, and I can worship God anywhere in any way. Okay, I, I, I love to sit at our pool in the summer and listen to people talk. 
they say the stupidest things. And one of, one, of, one of the things Marty and I were listening one day and these people were going on about how dumb it was to go to church and worship because you could worship there at the pool. Now, they're worshiping something there at the pool, but it's, uh, trust me, it's not the God we're talking about. Uh, I think it's their bellies and their tans. But um, uh, the, the fact of the matter is if everything is worship, then nothing is worship, right? So there's something going on here about all of this attention and all of this money and all of this stuff about the people of God being gathered together in one place, acknowledging their creation, acknowledging the reality of their redemption. Remember, Jesus, when he is sitting by the woman at the well, what does he say? That God seeks worshipers. And not only does God seek worshipers, he gets worshipers. And God has done everything needed to turn us into worshipers. He has made us. He has made us with a bent towards worship. He has redeemed us by Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, living our life, dying our death, rising again. He has given us his spirit and he's given us his word to tell us what worship looks like. So all of those things have been given gifts to us. So our God is at busily at work in forming a group of people, but not just forming a group of people, forming worshipers. He is doing all of this to draw us, to make us uh, his worshipers. And so these people left everything, spent what little they had, what much they had, so that the worship of God could be reestablished. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. They did as he had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Let's use this confession of sin that's in the bulletin, also up uh, on the uh, screens behind me. Let's confess our sins. Oh, Lord, no day of our lives passes that does not prove us guilty in your sight. Our best services are filthy rags. All things in us call for our rejection. However, all things in Christ plead our acceptance. Grant us to hear your voice assuring us that by your stripes we are healed, that you are bruised for our iniquities, that you became sin for us, that we might be robed in your righteousness. Grant that we might walk in newness of life as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now ministering in his name, and he gave it to his followers. Jesus Christ took on your life, your flesh, your sin, your death to set you free so that today you can be reminded as you hear the gospel and as you take this bread and this cup uh, into your body uh, that you have full and free forgiveness of your sins and that he has set you free now to worship, to worship the one who has achieved this for you. We are his people and he is our God. And one of the ways we demonstrate that is by proclaiming what our God has done on our behalf. That when we were alienated, he came close. When we were in rebellion, he came near. When we were uninterested, he died for us. That's what forms us. That's what makes us. And that ultimately is what drives our worship of the God who made us and redeemed us. If that's your hope today, even if you've forgotten it most of this past week, you have an opportunity today to repent, to turn from that and be re-reminded and re-renewed of the truth of the God who calls you to himself. If that's your hope, you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere. He welcomes you today. He wants you to be renewed. He wants you to be nourished in him. And he wants you to have the gospel made precious to you once again. Uh, As the uh, elders and deacons come down front to assist me this morning, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine. Uh, The inner rings are uh, grape juice. And all the bread is bread that is gluten-free.